Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Listen to these words. You can close your eyes to unexpected behavior. You can stop your ears against a tale newly told. But if someone burns the flag, something must be done. Lay a finger on a cherished symbol and the fat will be in the fire. Life as you and I know it, friends, this evening is all about symbols and ceremonies and rituals which are so profoundly precious to us, so profoundly precious that if someone tries to disrupt them or destroy them or take them away from us, the very foundations of the lives we lead will crumble. Marriage with its symbol of the wedding ceremony what has it been like for us in recent years as the, the, the symbol of marriage has changed, the ceremony of marriage has changed from being one man and one woman into something different? The royal family, wherever you are on the spectrum of pro or anti the monarchy, how would we feel if the queen announced that she was no longer going to live in Buckingham Palace but instead was going to take up residence at 32 Greenside Gardens in Dagenham? Buckingham Palace is going to be raised to the ground. There's a royal wedding on the horizon. Actually, the couple announced we're not going to have all the ceremony. We're just going to get married in the registry office. You students have your graduation coming up and the the professors email you and say, we've cancelled graduation, not even because of the pandemic, not because of lockdown. We're not even having it on Zoom. We're just going to get you to sign on the dotted line that you've got your certificate. That's it. A new president is inaugurated, a handshake in a back office, and there it is. No, our our very culture and society would collapse, wouldn't it, without those symbols and rituals on display in our society. They matter so much to us, don't they? This new section of Mark's Gospel that Will read for us, chapter 11, we're entering now the final part of Mark's Gospel, chapter 11 through to chapter 16, it is all about a cherished symbol. And it is all about the Lord Jesus laying a finger on a cherished symbol. And it is all about the fat being in the fire because he does so. We've called this series of sermons Following a Suffering Saviour. Here is why the Lord Jesus is suffering and about to suffer. What is the symbol? In what we've read this evening, it is the temple. The temple. Friends, it is impossible to underestimate what the temple meant in the first century to God's people. It was the central symbol of Judaism. The temple was the topic of some of her most cherished stories. The the temple was the answer to Israel's deepest questions. The temple was the subject of some of her most beautiful songs. And the temple was the place where Jesus chose to perform a dramatic action 
two dramatic actions, in fact, that would lead to his execution. And do you know, it was because of the temple that Jesus here performs his only miracle in the final part of this book. There is one miracle in Mark chapter 11 to 16, and we've had it read for us this evening. Now, before, before I try and tell you what I think this passage is all about and how it works, let, let me just say one more thing about symbols. Where you have great symbols, like the temple, then symbolic gestures are everything. So, so the symbol of a king or a queen as a head of a nation state, the symbolic gestures that go with that king or queen are everything, aren't they? We do not want that king or queen to travel by taxi or in a beat-up people carrier, a Renault Clio to a public event. No, we, we want somebody like that, don't we, to travel at least occasionally by horse and, horse-drawn golden carriage. Coronation. We want the symbolic gesture of seeing the robe and the scepter and the crown being given to them. Graduation. You want the gown and the mortarboard, don't you? You, you want the procession across the stage because something is changing. A new status is being conferred and we understand the symbolic gesture of what is happening that tells the story. It is important in the wedding ceremony that bride and groom arrive separately and stand apart until joined in marriage. It is important that she wears white and that they leave together now new to start a new life together. Structures tell stories, don't they? And so here it is in our passage this evening, friends, into a world where the symbol of the temple literally dominates the horizon. And remember, in the temple, the temple itself was a symbol where symbolic gestures were everything. Knife in hand, animal, sacrifice, priest, garments, curtain, a holy of holies. Once a year the priest enters behind the curtain into that world where symbolic gestures tell magnificent stories. The Lord Jesus comes and does what? He performs incredible symbolic gestures to tell the story of what he is doing in the world. And to tell the story of what God is now doing to the temple. See, if you look at verse 12, isn't it astonishing? Verse 11, he entered Jerusalem, went into the temple. What does he do next? Verse 12, on the following day, he curses a fig tree. Then after that, verse 15, back to the temple, he cleanses the temple. Then verse 20, you get the lesson from the curse, the withered fig tree. Did you pick it up, the point point of it? We've had sandwiches in Mark, haven't we, all the way through? There it is laid out literally in front of you. The fig tree, the temple, the fig tree. Do you see the lesson? What Jesus does to the fig tree is what God is doing to the temple. What the Lord Jesus does to the fig tree, cursing it, causing it to wither and, and die, is what God is doing to the temple. He is cursing the temple. And leaving the temple barren. The barren tree is a symbolic gesture, isn't it? To illustrate a barren temple. And to teach you and me about lifeless religion. It is a symbolic gesture tied to the great symbol to tell a dramatic story. And the story is this. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. 
Friends, this passage this evening is all about fruitlessness versus fruitfulness. Fruitlessness versus fruitfulness. The Lord Jesus is teaching us that fruitless religion, barren religion, draws his anger and condemnation like nothing else. Religion that has plenty of foliage, plenty of shiny things around it, but no fruit at the heart of it is an abomination to God. That is what Jesus saw in the temple and in his people, and it broke his heart and drew his righteous fury. Why does he curse a fig tree? So, so strange, isn't it? Verses 12, 13, 14. Why does he do it? Because like the Old Testament prophets, like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, Jesus is telling the story of Israel gone wrong, gone bad, gone off the rails. And the Lord Jesus is actually acting out the judgment that is to come. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 8. Jeremiah chapter 8. I will take away their harvest declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine, there will be no figs on the tree, and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. I want to show you three things here this evening that show us what fruitlessness looks like and what fruitfulness looks like. Don't think that this world of temple and tree and symbol and symbolic actions is far removed from us in Trinity. It's not at all. Do you see verse 14? He said to his disciples, May no one ever eat from you again. And his disciples heard it. I wonder if you spotted that little phrase in the middle of our passage. There is your sermon this evening. And his disciples heard it. All of this is for Jesus' followers. The, the crowds, the temple, the the fig tree, the cursing, it is for his disciples to hear it, for you and for me to see it, to listen to it and to understand it. Here is what Jesus hates. Here is what Jesus loves so that we can understand it too. Here's the first thing. Number one, fruitlessness is not recognizing God's king. Fruitlessness is not recognizing God's rightful king. You cannot bear fruit for God, fruit that pleases God, unless you recognize God's rightful king. See, that, that is what verses 1 to 11 are all about. God's king arrives in God's city. Jer Jerusalem and the temple, those two things, Jerusalem and temple, the capital and the palace of the king. You arrive in London, the capital, what are you going to go and see? Buckingham Palace. London, the city, Buckingham Palace is the temple. God's king comes to his capital city and to what should be his palace. And he is not even recognized or known or regarded as king. See, th th this entry, friends, as Mark presents it, is really the non-triumphal entry. It's really the non-triumphal entry. I know that maybe sounds strange with what you have, verse 7 and 8 and so on. I'm going to try and show it to you. But Jesus arrives and do you know what happens? Absolutely nothing happens. Nothing happens. Let me try and show it to you and then, and then, uh, then apply it. This whole event is, is full of more symbolic gestures than we probably realize. Look, look where Jesus starts from in verse 1. He starts out 
from the Mount of Olives. And we just hear the words and move on to the next verse. But Zechariah chapter 14, we're told that the day of the Lord, when the day of the Lord comes in judgment, the king will be standing on Mount Olives. Mount Olives was a symbolic starting point for battle. It was a launching point for an invasion. This is where you start from. What about what, about what he does next? Verse uh, 2 onward, sending his disciples to get a colt. And to get a colt that has never been ridden on before. 1 Kings chapter 1, Numbers chapter 19, Ze- Zechariah chapter 9, Solomon rode on a donkey. Zechariah promised a king would come gentle and riding on a donkey. And Do you know what? This language that you've got here with uh, verse 3, if people ask you, what are you doing? And the Lord wants it, verse 4. They, they went away and found a colt tied and untied it. There's a lot of tying and untying of this donkey, isn't there? Genesis chapter 49 promised that the scepter, the scepter, the royal Insignia, the royal rule would never depart from Judah's line. There is a promise that one day the king would tether his donkey. Here is the Lord Jesus, friends, engaged in a remarkable staging of the king's dramatic arrival in Jerusalem. That's how the crowd understand it, isn't it? Verse 10. Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The king is coming. And friends, here's the thing. When he comes, absolutely nothing happens. Verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. It's incredible. He has come from Bethany. He enters Jerusalem. The crowds are cheering. They disperse. It's a bit late. He goes back to Bethany. Right back to where he started from. Now, this crowd, verses 7 onwards, this crowd who were cheering and chanting, here is a really important important thing to see. I think Mark wants us to know that this crowd in verse 7 onwards, they are the same crowd as chapter 10 verse 46. Look at verse 46, the chapter immediately before. They came to Jericho and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, a great crowd. In other words, these are the people who have been traveling with Jesus who do this. This is not the inhabitants of Jerusalem coming out in their tens of thousands to meet Jesus. The, the people who are crying out Hosanna here, in Mark's account at least, these are the people who've traveled with him to Jerusalem. See, the entrance to Jerusalem at Passover time, it would have been an incredible hubbub of pilgrims arriving all the time. They would have been arriving and singing and coming and going. And here's one over here riding in on a donkey and a crowd are singing. So what? God's king arrives in God's city, comes to his palace, and nobody cares. Apart from his followers. Apart from the crowd that have come with him. Apart from them as they enter the city, nobody recognizes him. It was a thoroughly non-triumphal entry. Friends, Mark wants us to know, verse 11, 
is not a statement of defeat. It is not Jesus saying, oh well, I tried. I came, I gave it my best shot, but look, it's a bit late, a bit tired, I'll go home. We'll try it again another day, I'll come back. No, verse 11 should chill the blood. Here is the king traveling from Mount Olives, the entry point of God's great final victory. He arrives in the city and he surveys the scene the day before battle. There's that, there was that BBC series, wasn't there, several years ago about Napoleon. There's an amazing scene where the night before battle, Napoleon walks around and surveys from a vantage point the battlefield where the very next day blood will be shed. The king is in complete command. He knows what is happening. Luke's gospel tells us, as the Lord Jesus approached the city and saw it come into view, he wept. If only you had known what would bring you peace, he says, but now not one stone will be left on another. Friends, fruitless religion Fruitless religion does not recognize God's king even when he is there right in the midst of them. Oh, it might look spectacular. The temple was amazing. It was truly amazing. And Passover was in full swing. The, the whole point of the Jewish religion was here. The hustle and bustle of religion was everywhere. But when God came... When the king came, people were far too busy doing religious things to recognize him. When the king came, his subjects were too busy serving him to see him in their midst. Brothers and sisters, do you know that fruitless religion, fruitless religion has splendid facade but sterile function. Fruitless religion has immense machinery and little reality. Huge industry and overwhelming activism, but no recognition that who Jesus is and what Jesus says and what Jesus does matters more than life itself. You know, it's easy for churches like ours, smaller churches that are off to the side in the, in the nation, it's easy for churches like ours to look at the national church and see the, see, see the, See the destruction of the temple being played out again in front of our eyes. Massive machinery, tremendous bureaucracy, and not much real spiritual life at its heart. But actually what Jesus does here himself, verse 14, friends, is so key. His disciples heard it. What about us? This is to his closest followers. Jesus is teaching all of this. Never think that it is only people out there who are fruitless by not recognizing who Jesus is. What about us? What about you and me? See, in all the things I've told you, Mount of Olives, tying and untying the colt, Hosanna, these people praising him from the Old Testament, in all of this, the Lord Jesus is giving people their Bibles, isn't he? He's acting out what their own Bibles told them. Literally, here is what God's promised king said he would do. Here's what the temple should be like. Here's what fruitfulness looks like. And they were not listening anymore. Here's a way to know, friends, about the fruit in your own life. Gavin told us about this this morning, didn't he? Here's a way to look at the fruit hanging on the branches of your life. One way to know whether you recognize God's king is to ask 
whether you submit to God's word. When was the last time you went with the Bible when it told you something you didn't like? For for that's what's happening here. These people have long stopped listening to the Bible that they no longer even recognize when the one who spoke it is in their midst. When was the last time you went with the Bible when it told you something that you didn't like? This is painful, Lord. I don't, I don't like this. This goes against me and what I think and what I would like. But, but you are the king, not me. You are the king, not me. So I will do this. I'll stop doing that. Fruitlessness, number one, is not recognizing, is not recognizing God's rightful king. Number two, fruitlessness is not recognizing God's relational purpose. Not recognizing God's relational purpose. This is verses 12 to 19. This is 12 to 19, 15 to 19, sorry, rather in, in the temple. Why did Jesus do what he did here? Verses 15 to 19, driving out the money changers and sellers. Notice verse 16. He would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He's stopping the temple courts being used as a thoroughfare. He's stopping business in the temple and he's preventing travel. It's an incredible scene as we try and imagine it. The busiest time of the year with people coming and going. If if you've ever seen images on your TV of the Hajj in Mecca, the, the Muslim ritual, that is probably the closest that we can get to what is happening here. Thousands of Jewish people from all around Palestine would have been descending on Jerusalem and the one thing that everybody needed was an animal. Something to bring to the temple for a sacrifice. That is why these things are on sale here, isn't it? You needed one to bring it to the priest for him to offer it for you as a sacrifice. It's very important to be clear on that here. This is legitimate business. So the problem here is not the business It's the location. You notice that this is happening inside the temple courts. Inside the temple courts. Traditionally the business used to happen outside the temple. But over time it seems that business convenience encroached on reverence and honor and worship. And more than that, this was all happening in the court of the Gentiles. That's where it was taking place. The court of the Gentiles was meant to be a place where people from all the nations of the earth could stream into God's presence. You see that in verse 17? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But in fact, with all of this going on, the court was just being used as a shortcut, a trade route through the court. The court of Gentiles had become, forget the Gentiles, let's cram in the business leave them outside while we take more and more money oh you see the temple stood there as a colossal sign in the world that God was real that that you could really know him that you could love him and that a sacrifice offered to him could bring you into his presence and that all the nations on the earth could come to him and know him one of the psalms the great songs that I mentioned at the start said about the temple it is the joy of the whole earth the the temple stood there didn't it 
pointing you forward to a living, real relationship with God, whetting your appetite for a perfect relationship with Him. And Jesus looks at this temple and realizes it is now just full of businessmen. Nobody cares anymore what the temple actually points to. They just want to sign their name on the check, hand it in, drop the money in the offering bag and go home. Should have seen, should have seen the temple today, dear. It was heaving. But I managed to buy a dove and priest did his sacrifice, same as ever. I saw Joe from down the road. Everything, everything was great. Anything good on the TV tonight? No. No, says Jesus. No. Don't you want what the temple promised? Forgiveness. Reality, a relationship with God that dealt with your sin, that showed you that you matter and that your sin matters, but that he loves you and that he welcomes all people from everywhere to him. And so over go the tables and out goes everything that stopped people seeing that the the temple was there to show that fruitfulness is a real relationship with God. Fruitlessness is not recognizing God's relational purpose in the world. So many people think church is about dropping the money in the offering bag, don't they? The church is always after your money, is what people say. No, the church is after you. God is after you. Oh, friends, I wonder what we're like. What would God say of us. I see your commitment to my word. I see your growing numbers, your new members. I see your building project. Wonderful. And none of those things in themselves equal fruitfulness. They might do. They could do. They should do. But it all depends what's happening on the inside, isn't it? As all of those things happen. These two things about fruitlessness are followed thirdly. I want to finish with this. Followed with the Lord Jesus, teaching his disciples positively now what fruitfulness looks like. Fruitfulness is not all negative. Number three, fruitfulness is a real relationship with God. Fruitfulness is a real relationship with God. If you look from verse 22 onwards, there are three things here. Three things that the temple system pointed to that people had forgotten, but three things that God says, I want these three things to mark you, my disciples. I want you to have a real relationship with me, marked by three things, faith, prayer, and forgiveness. Faith, prayer, and forgiveness. I want to be honest with you, honest with you this evening. I don't really know yet what verse 23 or verse 24 means this language about the mountain being thrown into sea i think there is i think there is more going on here than meets the eye Th- this mountain jesus is very likely making a specific point about the temple the temple mount and the temple mount that is metaphorically about to be thrown into the sea destroyed ruined cursed made barren but whatever verse 23 means we can say this can't we This is true, isn't it? Foliage instead of fruit loves all the outward trappings, doesn't it? The things you can see and spot, money, buildings, numbers, crowds, ritual. But but fruitfulness consists of the things you cannot see. Faith, prayer, forgiveness. 
Isn't that a remarkable contrast right at the end? Have faith in God, verse 22. Pray, verse 24. And verse 25, forgive. What did we say in the Lord's Prayer this morning? Lead me, keep me, feed me, forgive me. Faith in God, trust in God, relying on God instead of myself. Prayer, speaking to God every day like a child speaking to their father. And a recognition that if I'm asking God to forgive me, but as he forgives me, I'm harboring resentment and bitterness in my heart towards someone else. Please know, says Jesus, if that's you, that your own prayers simply hit the ceiling. Don't go any further. Here's the challenge for us this evening. Here is how one preacher has put this. He said this, Do we look better under a microscope or a telescope? Do we look better under a microscope or a telescope? Jerusalem looked magnificent, didn't it? Through the telescope, the long range, the long range looked as you looked at Jerusalem. It looked fantastic, but when Jesus got close and put Jerusalem under the microscope, what did he see? All he could see within the walls, within the shining gold, was death and decay, no life, no fruit. Mark's Gospel says to me this evening, when the Lord Jesus comes and looks at my tree, what does he find? What does he find? That is what he wants his disciples, verse 14, to hear. That is what he wants to find. May he find fruit in you, in me, in all of us, all our days, in his name. Amen.